John chapter 1, grab your copy of the Word, uh, turn with me there. I want us to consider this morning the fullness of His grace. We have, uh, in the previous two weeks, looked at the eternal Word of God, and then last week, the incarnate Word of God. And to remind us, as we continue on this journey through John's Gospel, what John is doing here is setting the framework for the rest of his account of the life of the Lord Jesus. And John is not interested in uh, a precise chronological historical narrative as much as the theological aspect of Christ. And uh, that theme, that purpose of his writing is that we would believe, John twenty thirty one. These things are written that you may, be, may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so last week we uh, spent the whole morning looking at John chapter 1 and verse 14. And uh, so what we have in verses 16 through 18 is actually John's explanation of verse 14. And so we'll pick it up in verse 14. And I want us to ponder these words here for just a moment before we look at 16 through 18, our text uh, for today. John writes about the Lord Jesus in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Ponder these astounding words for a moment. We'll just, I'll read a phrase and just ponder the truth of that phrase. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And this old apostle, dear friend of the Lord Jesus, writes these words. And we are privileged to be beneficiaries of these words. And to think back to uh, the context, the setting, the time frame, the history up to this point that informed so much of what John wrote. And there's, this is not an insignificant statement at all, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And so what John has done in verses 1 through 14 and he, is he's reminded the reader that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in very nature and person God, can actually be known. And he comes in verse 14 and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. And so Jesus doesn't merely exist as some significant historical character that ultimately lost His life for His own personal cause, nor does He exist as some distant God-like figure from whom we must work to gain a hearing or acceptance. Absolutely not. What John is presenting here and reminding us is that God has made himself known through the word made flesh, through this one, Jesus Christ. And since he's made himself known in the word made flesh, we can actually know him. We can actually know him and be known by him. 
And so and one of the primary ways that we understand and experience our knowing him is by knowing his grace, the fullness of his grace, which, which John goes on to explain here in verses 16 through 18. I'm fairly decent at math. I know 15 is in between 14 and 16. We're going to come back to 15 next week when we consider John the Baptist. So hang tight there. Let's pick it up in verse 16, our text for today. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so what John is doing here in verses 16 through 18 is he's unpacking his thought in verse 14. And so as a good teacher, as a good preacher, as a good writer, he's saying, hey, here's the truth, and here's how this kind of starts to make sense a little bit. And so uh, we'll consider three statements from verses 16 through 18 here. Here's statement one. God's grace enables us to see the glory of Christ. God's grace enables us to see the glory of Christ. This is verse 16. He says, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace grace now notice uh he he, here here in uh in verse 16 and from his fullness we've all received and then he's going to go in verse 17 and say for the law was given through through moses uh the words there the and at the beginning of verse 16 the for at the beginning of verse 17 both carry with them the idea of because since i've stated this fact the word became flesh and dwelt among us since that is true therefore we can now this and we can know the glory of Christ. We can see the glory of Christ because God's grace makes that actually possible for us. So in verse 16, he gives three primary statements. He says, for from his fullness, we have all received and then grace upon grace. So let's, let's consider these three statements here uh, as we ponder the idea of God's grace enabling us to see the glory of Christ. First, for, from his fullness. What John is saying here is we know this to be true by our actual experience. Like we've, we've seen it. You go to 1 John. He says we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. Like we beheld him. This is not just some idea that we're presenting to you. But I saw and I witnessed the pre-death Christ, the dead Christ, and then the post-resurrection Christ. Like we touched him. We felt him. We heard from him. We conversed with him. We sat with him. And so this, this truth is verified and, and emphasized by experience. And so he uses the word fullness here. And if you think about what he's doing here, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. He's, he's taking the, the idea back to verse 14 where he refers to this son from the father full of grace and truth. So this fullness reminds us that in Christ there is nothing deficient. Christ is absolutely completely sufficient in all things. And the, the word fullness means completely full. It's Colossians 1.19. Paul put it this way, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in Christ we have the fullness of God. In Christ we have the absolute sufficient fullness of God. And so Christ is not just some kind of shadow of a God character. What, what John is doing here is saying from his fullness, from the fullness of who he is, we have received. And so the second phrase there, we have all received. And this, this statement that he, that he makes here, we have all received, it carries the idea of a final action, finality of action here. We've received the fullness of God's grace when we were first redeemed. Which, what he's, what he's doing, what he's presenting, what we interpret this rightly as saying is that in Christ we've received all the grace we're going to get. It is fully sufficient. 
It's not as if God is giving us an ounce of grace here and an ounce of grace there and an ounce of grace there. But for His fullness, we have all received. This is, this is a completed action. We have all received grace upon grace. And it's the same verb tense that He uses back in verse 12 when He refers to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. He gave the right to become children of God. So in receiving Christ, we are receiving all of God's grace that is ours. And then He unpacks that idea a little more with the third phrase in verse 16 this grace upon grace what have we received from god we've received grace if we know him if you're a redeemed son or daughter of the king you have received grace this fullness of his grace this inexhaustible resource this infinite supply of grace church we will never get to a point where god says that's all i got for you his grace is an infinite supply and that is good news for us That is good news for us. We've received grace, this inexhaustible resource of grace. And so what he's not referring to here in this idea of grace upon grace has been misinterpreted sometimes to carry the idea of this continuous, broken, dispensing of grace gifts where God's like kind of doling out grace, kind of like you do to... to, to, uh, a bunch of kindergart- kindergartners on a field trip. Okay, here's 50 cents for this. Here's 50 cents for this. Here's 50 cents for this. That's not the idea that, that John is communicating here. He's, com- he's communicating the idea that grace follows grace in an endless supply of grace. Grace is not like water. Water is good, right? Unless you have too much of it. If you have too much water, what happens? You drown. Right? This, is not, this is not the case with grace. God's limitless supply of grace is actually good for us. This overwhelming reality of God's grace. And he says, we have all received. We have all received. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. One writer put it this way. God's grace to his people is continuous and never exhausted. It knows no interruption and it knows no limit. There's no pause button in the grace of God. So God's grace here, we've all received grace upon grace, which, remind us, which reminds us that, that God's grace in Christ is actually an inclusive reality. He, there's two words there in that middle phrase, we have all received, that just because we use them so often, we'll just blow right past them. But the word we and the word all. We. Who is he referring to? Who's the we here? It's the verse 12 people, all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Who knows and experiences and rejoices in the fullness of the grace of God? It's those who have received the grace of God. This is not true if you are outside the covenant family of God. Right? This is only true for those of us who are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so we who refers to all who did receive, who believed in his name. But then he goes and says, we have all received. So for those of us who are in the we, all applies. All right, so, so here's what's going on here. In, in the language of the New Testament, all means all. Right? This is, it just, that's what it means there. That's, that's how we interpret this. And so for those of us who have received the grace of God, this truth applies to all of us. And so grace upon grace is true for me. It's true for you. No matter background, no matter situation, no matter context, no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, fill in the blank, whatever your excuse may be, that God's grace is not sufficient for this. The Bible says, no, that is dead wrong. That is absolutely wrong because we have all received. We, those who have received his grace and believed on his name, verse 12, we, all of us, have all received, every one of us. This is level ground. 
equal playing field for us. Each, every, the whole, every child of God has equal application of and access to the grace of God in Christ. The truth of Ephesians 2.8 is true for everyone who is saved. For by what? Grace you've been saved through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. So, in light of God's grace enabling us to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Christ, the question has to flow out of verse 16, do you actually know His grace? Do you know His grace? To know the grace of God in Jesus is to know the glory of God in Jesus. And we know His grace by repenting of our sin and believing on the Lord Jesus. So the fullness of His grace. One, God's grace enables us to see the glory of Christ. Which reminds us just, by the way, it reminds us that that this is not a reality that we achieve. We don't earn favor with God and He says, okay, you've done enough, now check this out. (laughs) Right? Because in our natural state we're dead. And we stay dead. Until God moves on us by His grace and for His glory. And when He moves on us by His grace and for His glory and makes us alive together with Him, Ephesians 2, then what do we get to experience? The grace of God. What do we get to see and to know? The glory of Christ. This is God's work. So God's grace enables us to see the glory of Christ. Secondly, verse 17, Jesus is the fullness of God's glory and His grace. Jesus is the fullness of God's glory and His grace. So he goes on in verse 17 and says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Another for statement here. So he's using words to help the reader and us understand more fully this phrase, grace upon grace. So he just he ends verse 16 with, uh, We have all received grace upon grace for... So he's explaining this phrase that he just landed with in verse 16. And so what he's going to start doing is he's going to start comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus. And so in in doing so, he's going to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus over Moses by doing, uh, we'll just, using verse 17, we'll we'll work with three statements here. Uh, First statement is that the law of Moses was not bad. The law takes a bad rap, right? We often are just like, oh, get that law away from me. We couldn't, we couldn't uphold it, we couldn't, we couldn't obey it, so it must be bad. But the law of Moses was not bad. There was actually nothing wrong with the law. Who gave the law? Who's the author of the law? God. Is there anything wrong or bad with God? No, he's the author. He gave the law, so then there's nothing wrong or bad with the law. And, but what the law did is it revealed man's depravity and man's desperate condition. But also in the law, we see a foreshadowing of this deliverance that's going to come from that condition, pointing to the ultimate redeemer, that is, the Lord Jesus. Paul referred to the law this way, Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law helps us to understand sin. Romans seven twelve. So the law is holy, and the commandment of God is holy and righteous and good. And so throughout the Gospel of John, we'll keep coming back to this uh, understanding of the law. What John often does is depict Moses in a positive light. And so John's problem is not with Moses and the law, but it's with the Jews and us who disobey the law and even misuse the law for their advantage, for our advantage. Moses and the law were actually gifts of grace from God. So the law of Moses was not bad, So, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John is not saying here that the law was bad. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the law's demands completely and perfectly. 
Jesus fulfilled the law's demands completely and perfectly. So the law was a stage of sin, a period of God's grace pointing to this coming Messiah. And so the law, actually, if if you read the law and understand the law rightly, the Old Testament, all of the law is pointing to this word becoming flesh. Right? There's all there's this constant echo out into the future of this one who's going to come and fulfill everything perfectly that you and I cannot feel, fulfill at all. So the law points to Jesus, Galatians 3.24. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Jesus himself, what, was he, what did he say in reference to how he viewed the law? Matthew 5.17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them. There's nothing to abolish. But I came to fulfill them. Why did Jesus come to fulfill the law? Because you and I couldn't. Right? We couldn't. The law didn't save. Fulfilling the law perfectly only did. We couldn't. So then Jesus comes and fulfills the law. And so Jesus fulfilled the law's demands perfectly and completely. The law of Moses was not bad. Romans 8, Paul's going to say that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because he's... God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Why? To fulfill this law. I mean, and we know this to be true. We know that it is impossible for us to obey the law perfectly. Like, that's our natural experience. Like, I don't care how good you are. You're not perfect. None of us are. And we can grit our teeth and bow up our chest at depravity and unrighteousness and all of those things. But we know innately that there's always failure. Right? But Jesus comes and fulfills the the law's demands completely and perfectly on our behalf. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which brings the third statement here. By fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf, Jesus reveals this grace and truth. And so the grace that is revealed by Jesus is necessarily greater than the grace of the law since the grace of the law anticipates this word becoming flesh. And back to the phrase there in verse 16, grace upon grace. We didn't unpack it while we were there in verse 16 because 17 helps us understand what John is referring to there. There's an infinite supply, but there's also a full expression of grace idea here. And so the grace of the old covenant law is now fulfilled by the grace of the new covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when he says grace upon grace, he's, he's, he's referring to this grace of the old covenant, which we could not actually fulfill. Jesus came, Matthew five seventeen, fulfilled the law in every way, since we couldn't. And now the grace that is in Christ is available to us. And interestingly, John doesn't use grace again in his gospel account after verse 17. It's as if he sets it on the stage and then uses the person and the work of Jesus to illustrate what grace looks like. As he interacts with sinners and as he interacts with self-righteous people, as he interacts with those who want to kill him, those who want to worship him, you see a demonstration of grace. And Jesus is revealing grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. While John doesn't use grace again in his gospel, he actually uses truth around 25 more times in his gospel account. And so note the contrast here between Moses and Jesus, just in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One, Moses was given the law, which like the idea is 
somebody is giving to Moses this law, right? Moses was given the law. There's an outside person, outside force that's giving this truth to Moses. So Moses was given the law, but notice how John refers to Jesus. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So while Moses was given the law, Jesus actually is grace and truth. Diametrically different. Not even same category. So Jesus is grace and truth. Also remember, we looked at it last week, Moses' most significant request from Exodus 33. Remember what his, his kind of supreme request to the Lord was? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Whereas verse 14 we see, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His what? Glory. So Jesus doesn't have to see glory. He actually is glory. And Moses points to grace. Jesus actually performs grace. Moses speaks the Word of God. Jesus actually is the Word of God. And so grace here is that unmerited favor toward us as sinners, and because of God's grace, because of this fullness of grace that we've received through Christ, we can behold the glory of God in and through Jesus. And God's grace is ours in Christ, displayed ultimately in God sending Christ to save us from our sins. When you see in verse 14, and the word became flesh, just think grace. Grace, the fact the Son of God Existing eternally sufficient and satisfied, needing nothing, became flesh. To die on behalf of sinners. So he's full of grace. He's also full of truth. This declaration of all that is truth. Jesus himself is truth, John 14, 6. He's completely trustworthy. He demands truth from us, and in his grace, what does he do? He is truth for us. See, God God gives us that which He demands from us. He demands perfection from us, and so what does He do? He gives us Christ. We can't achieve, we can't earn this affection, we can't merit this favor, or it's not grace. John Piper put it this way, commenting on this grace upon grace and the fullness of grace here. He wrote, This fullness is not only a fullness of grace, but of truth. It says, I am not being graced with truth ignoring flattery. Like I'm not just being puffed up, like just everything's going to be okay. I'm not being graced with truth ignoring flattery. This grace is rooted in rock solid reality and truth. We know this to be true. John is giving us an eyewitness account of what he knows to be true because he saw it, because he lived it, because he heard it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says, Law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So one, God's grace enables us to see the glory of Christ. Secondly, Jesus is the fullness of God's glory and His grace. And number three, you want to see God? Look to Jesus. You want to see God? Look to Jesus. This is verse 18. That's His point. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Another contrast, obviously, to Moses here. To that request of Exodus 33. Show me your glory. John is saying, you don't have to say that anymore. You don't have to ask God, hey, show me your glory. Because we've seen His glory. 
We've seen His glory in the person and work of Christ. Moses asked to see God, and think about the story there in Exodus 33 and 34. What does Moses get? Just a glimpse, right? Because what did God tell him? You can't, you can't see all of my glory and live. Like, one millisecond of my glory and you're dust. It's game over. So he gets, Moses gets a glimpse of the glory of God from the backside. And so, but the contrast here is that Jesus is not this backside revelation of God from Exodus 34. He is actually the full revelation of God to us. And so where God had to protect Moses from the glory and the coming of Christ, God is saying, no, my glory is now on display in Christ. And so John can write, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only Son from the Father. And the word order here in verse 18 is important. It literally reads, God has no one seen at any time. The, the important person in verse 18 is God. God, no one has seen at any, at any time. And so no one has seen God. And everything in the Old Testament, including the, the life and time ministry of Moses and others, points to Christ. So a couple of examples we'll see here in John's Gospel. Moses lifts up the snake in the wilderness. What does Jesus refer to in John chapter 3? So shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses gave bread from heaven. John chapter 6, what does Jesus declare himself to be? True bread from heaven. And think about this. What Moses longed for and asked for, Jesus fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled. And so do you want to see God? Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. There is no other revelation that's coming. There is no other unveiling that's ours. If we want to seek, if we truly want to see God, we look to Christ. And it, but here's the cool thing: we don't just get a glimpse. We don't get the hand over our face revealing the backside. We get the full expression. He goes on in verse 18 and says, "No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known." The phrase there, "at the Father's side," it. it indicates closeness intimacy it's literally like he was in the bosom and the chest of the father as close as possible and so the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known referring to jesus what has jesus done jesus has made god known to us because why he's god because he's god he's god and and the language there interestingly the the word he has made him known it means to tell fully it means to make fully known it's the word we get our word exegete from if you're not in preaching circles that may not be a word that under that you understand but it means to make a clear explanation of some reality and so what he's saying there is that god that christ in his person and work has given a proper and thorough and full explanation and understanding of who god is And so think about this. Through Christ, who do we get to know? Christ. Through Christ, we get to know Christ. And how does this happen? It happens because of verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. The fullness of His grace... A few things we have to understand here from verses 16, 17, 18. In Christ, and only in Christ, do we have absolute, complete, sufficient understanding and knowledge of God. 
Because he has in himself chosen to make himself known this way. And it happened through the word becoming flesh. And so the, the sometimes off-base request that we have of, Lord, show me your glory, is not so much a, a request to see more of God. right? Because in this account, we have all of God we need to know. Right? He's made himself known. The living word has made himself known through the written word. And so there's no, Lord, help, help me see your glory. We don't have to pray that prayer of Moses anymore. That's John's point. Because in Christ becoming flesh, he's displayed his glory. We be, we've seen, we've beheld his glory. Glories of the only son from the father. And so our kind of request, our desire there that we may sometimes come to the table with is more a reflection on us than it is on God. What does God want to do? God wants to make himself known. We read that from Psalm 56 just a minute ago. He wants his glory to be known in all the earth. So the issue doesn't lie so much with God as it does with us. And so how do we know this grace? How do we know this truth in the person and the work of Christ? Well, first, John chapter 3, we must be born again. The natural mind does not receive these things. The person outside of Christ has no clue what this means. And so we must be born again. We must repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus. And so over these next several months, as we're tracking through John, here's what we're going to do as we look at the written word to help us to understand and to know rightly the living word. We're going to see Christ. We're going to see Jesus, the eternal incarnate Son of God, Word of God. And we're going to see Him through this written word. And by seeing Jesus, we're going to see God. And so God, in His goodness and His kindness toward us, has chosen graciously revealed himself to us through his word and christ has made himself known because he actually is god we'll we'll look at john the baptist next week and john the baptist was giving testimony to christ he was the the voice of the one in the wilderness crying the kingdom of the lord at hand repent 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 when jesus comes on the scene john the baptist fades into the background Right? We really don't see much of him anymore until he's beheaded. Because the focal point of all of human history and of our lives is Christ. And the beauty and the majesty of this reality is that we can trust God with how that impacts our lives. We can trust God with how that impacts our lives. And By seeing Christ, by seeing God through the pages of John's gospel and through verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glories of the only Son of the Father. Here's the beauty. What is firmed up in us? What is solidified in us? Our faith, right? The fact that we believe. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, this account, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. 
And so by seeing Christ through John's gospel, through the word, what's going to happen? We will believe, believe, believe. We will be reminded that we are children of God. We will be reminded that we are sons and daughters of the King. We will be reminded that we have nothing in and of ourselves when we come to the table before the Lord. But God has accomplished everything necessary for us to be made right with Him in Christ. And only in Christ. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So brother, sister... For those who know Christ, be reminded this morning. God's grace is ours in infinite supply. Which does not compel us to make a mockery of that grace, does it? It compels us to live rightly in regard to that grace. Right? And to to understand when we try to possibly manipulate that grace that grace or become cold to that grace or take for granted that grace and words like John 1:16 come and harness our minds and wreck our souls again with the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace and then what is the what is the necessary natural outflow of that reminder of grace It's that we worship. It's that our lives are characterized by worship. Which, yes, includes music, but is not all music. It's You will go to work tomorrow. You will go to school tomorrow. The way you operate yourself tomorrow is a reflection of who you worship. Or maybe what you worship. I firmly believe as Redeemer Church, as a body a family joined together. If we can latch on, hold tightly to the words here in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then quite possibly our lives could look radically different than the way they do. You see, there's a writer here, the Apostle John, who in his being saved by the Lord Jesus, following the Lord Jesus, and then honoring the Lord Jesus, here's a life that was radically different. Incredibly different. in the culture and the society that he was in. Which is only attributed to the grace of God. And here's one who actually believed the words that he wrote. So much so that he said, hey, I believe this so much that I'm trusting that by God's grace, you're going to believe it too. And here we are a couple thousand years later, reading these words and being reminded, yeah, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And he actually dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Like, we, we saw His glory, is what John is saying. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has self-revealed himself in the person and work of Christ. And we get to live accordingly. Do you know Christ? Not just about Christ, but do you truly know Christ? Do you know the Christ of John 1, 1 through 16? Not some fairy tale story, rhyme about Jesus, but the actual Christ of the Bible. If you don't, John 20, 31, believe. Believe. Repent of your sin and confess your belief on Him and to Him. Believe on Him. If you say, oh yeah, I know Christ. No doubt. Well then, the admonition of John's Gospel is the same to us, right? Believe. Believe. It doesn't change. We don't graduate from believing. We believe. And then we long for that day when, like John, who says, hey, I actually saw Him, we will see Him. Right? That day's coming. But until then, we know these words to be true. And our lives reflect the beauty and the glory of King Jesus.